welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know, a J10 initiative. The numbers start going. Welcome to the podcast, Father John. Father Sean. Good to be with you here at the uh, Lord's Campus, one of the two parishes that Father Sean uh, works at, Father Brian Larkin. That's right. And Father Vitold. Welcome to my parish boundaries. That's right. Father Sean, uh, we, Mondays are our day out of the office. I don't like calling them days off because we don't have days off, you know. Um, That's right. But uh, day uh, away. Day of descanso, I think they say in Spanish, right? Like a day of rest. That's right. And he just got some fresh pal at Vail. It was amazing. Yeah. What a great day. Uh, China Bowl was untracked. I mean, I uh, stayed up in Glenwood Springs with Father Tony Davis. Shout out to him. Uh, he never listens to this podcast. No doubt. So, but I'm sure some of his friends will text him when they hear his name. Uh, stayed up with him. I did not know it was going to snow, but we woke up with five inches oh, man. on the driveway. And then driving through Glenwood Canyon, got to Vail, parked, had fresh powder all day. Fresh Incredible. Tracks. Incredible. You got to love it. You got to love it. I... Uh, was supposed to go up today, but uh, missed out, and uh, just a little bit. Uh, just need a little, a little rest. Were you I, supposed to ski with your nephews today? No, I skied with them last week. I was going to ski with Jordan and uh, Steve Sayo, who's kind of like a nephew to me, you know. So, but <laughs> uh, we all bailed on him. We were just feeling a bit run down. We had a nice few days as a family yeah. uh, together. And uh, and speaking of Lord's Parish, uh, Saturday night was a huge gala event. Yeah, super successful. Is it gala or gala? It depends if you're British. Oh, Brit- really? Uh, English say gala. Okay. Yeah, the Lord's 2023 Saints and Scholars Gala. Gala. But I say gala because that's what uh, Webster Dictionary told me online. If you're American, you say gala. Okay, there you go. That's so, a good clarification. Uh, but yeah, it was a huge success. It, we raised uh, quite a bit of money for the school, which is great. Uh, most of our school families don't pay full tu- tuition. This is what I learned on Saturday night. Um, I had the joy of being the co MC. Oh, okay. With Father Vitold. So you put your two parochial vicars as MCs and you throw your pastor under the bus every other joke. As as one should, exactly. So one of my favorite jokes that I made is uh, after Father Vitold made some uh, jokes about me, I said, well, you know what? I spent a lot of time with Father Brian and Father Vitold, and I sure hope hair loss is not contagious. Yes. <laughs> Always go for the hair when in doubt. Um, I just saw the piece that you did um, for the gala, which sold a great, uh, great amount. But, uh, would you explain that to everybody? Sure. So, uh, we have a phenomenal art teacher here. Uh, Brie Schultze is her name. Um, Brie Schultze art, uh, incredible artist. She sells a lot of her stuff online. Um, but anyways, she, uh, painted something last year that went for uh, a good number. And I went to her and I said, what if we built something together? What if I built a crucifix a cross, and you painted a corpus and she goes, well, it better like look more fancy than just like a vertical beam and horizontal beam. And I said, I don't know how fancy I can do. We yeah. can give it a shot. Um, so long story short, we start working on this crucifix and she sculpted a beautiful corpus and then casted a mold of it and then painted it, which you saw. And she's a phenomenal, phenomenal painter. She's new to sculpting, but she crushed it. And then I made a beautiful cross out of white oak uh, with some kind of darker walnut stain um, did some cutouts on the end uh, of the uh, Sacred Heart of Jesus, the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and the Chaste Heart of St. Joseph with the skull and crossbones at the bottom. Uh, did some kind of fancy roundover or uh, uh, fancy router bits a- along the edges to make it look nice. And yeah, I'm really proud of it. Uh, apparently, they want to write an 
article in the Denver Catholic. So nice. <laughs> we'll see if that comes about. You should be proud of it. It's absolutely stunning to see. Um, I mean, just the, yeah, I don't, I can't even begin to describe it, but the corpus, um, the whole thing, we'll have to get a photo out, um, and show well, people. That's a good idea. Because, uh, man, what a beautiful piece. Um, almost as beautiful as the, uh, kitchen table you built, uh, for St. <laughs> Joe's house, like 15 years ago. So that's right. Wasn't that you? Uh, kitchen table. I don't think that the was a huge me. table in the in my dining room. It's I've perched it. I hate to tell you that. Maybe it was somebody else who made that. No, so. I did not make that. Okay, we're seeing the steps of. Maybe I did. I don't master know. Master craftsmanship. I I made a bookshelf that's still in uh, Lord's house over here, the parish house, uh, which I was really proud of that bookshelf. I don't know why I didn't move with it, but it's over there still. That's good. I think the reason we thought you built this was because it was handcrafted, and it's huge. It's like the highest table ever. Like all the little like short, a standing desk. Yeah, like short guys can't eat at it because it's too small. So no. like, this is obviously made by a man who's 6'5". I don't know who made that. I, I don't think it was me. That's funny. It's not ringing any bells. That's funny. I did a funeral recently for a wonderful man uh, named Ray. Ray uh, was a master electrician and just kind of an all-around handyman. He's just of that generation where it's just like, these guys can mm-hmm. do anything, like our grandparents. And uh, Ray and Ruth um, were the grandparents of my brother's best friend in elementary school. The Crestmans were really still close with them. But Ray and I uh, did electrical work in the summer when we finished our basement. Hmm. My dad, I think, anticipating that um, I was moving in the direction of kind of intellectual work and had no practical skills whatsoever to offer to the world, which I still don't. Uh, he is like, you and your brother were finished in the basement this year. And so we worked on all summer and we did framing and um, insulation and drywall. And then Ray came in to do electrical. And this is, I was in like seventh grade. Um, so Ray, and if you ever noticed this in my parents' basement, Ray was like four foot five and I was probably about the same. So we put in all of the light switches and they're like super low. No, (laughs) You probably wouldn't be able to reach them, uh, all through the basement. And I, I told that story at his funeral homily, um, just a wonderful man and, uh, just a funny thing, but I haven't done electrical since. Electrical scares me. I I stay away from that. I don't want to be electrocuted. My uncle is an electrician actually. He uh, came when I was young to our house to fix up some stuff because my dad my dad's an engineer he'll do a lot of work around the house but he doesn't mess with the electrical stuff either but i don't know i love working with my hands getting my hands dirty and right i mean you you do too you like working on your bike and tinkering with things but uh the sense of accomplishment one gets after completing a project is is so great yeah that's true uh except for last night i was doing all my kind of gear work just kind of getting things back in order and Mm -hmm. i'd stripped the a screw on the head, my headlamp and I couldn't get it undone. So I was working on it, working and couldn't get it. Like your camping headlamp? Yeah. Oh, shoot. Because I was skiing with it and it was going out. Oh, because you I was, were when I was skinning in, in the dark. Yeah, yeah, in the dark. And uh, I'm just like, you know what? I live with 12 guys and a lot of them are from Kansas. They're going to do this in like two seconds. And sure <laughs> enough, right. I bring it into the community room. They're watching something. I was like, can somebody fix this? And just like Jonathan Fox, just like within 30 seconds, I was just like, yeah. okay, I just spent 20 minutes doing The that. good old so, farm boys, you know? The farm boys. Fix it all. <laughs> That's right. All right, Sean, um, I got a topic that I think is interesting, but you might not think is interesting at all based on one question. <laughs> have you read John Steinbeck's East of Eden? I haven't, okay. but it's on the to-do list. All right, well, this is going to be... One of my goals for 2023 is to read a book a month, so... Nice. And write a century a month. And write a century a month, yeah. That's, a, that's a good. Those are good goals. Um, so yeah, you're, you're really not going to be interested in what I have to say today. Cause I want to talk about East of Eden, but I have some other questions around it, um, that you definitely, um, can speak to. And, and certainly you can still speak to the, the main topic, which is Tim Shul. Tim Shul is the Hebrew word that is the center of the whole book. 
Um, also a Mumford and Sons song. Also a wonderful Mumford and Sons. I was listening on the way over, getting inspiration. You know, it's a beautiful one. Um, so this topic is uh, not just a shout out; it's devoted to two women, uh, particular. Uh, well, so one of them is uh, Amanda Credur. Do you know her? I do. Okay, so she runs the Well Read Moms Group here at Lords. I don't know if she listens to the podcast. My sister reached out because I referenced East of Eden a couple months ago. I heard about this. Rap and I were fin. I was like 30 pages finished. I was just dying to finish it. And um, and so she reached out and said, will you come talk to our, our Well-Read Moms book club? And I was like, uh, sure. And we're looking to find a time to do that. And then someone named Susan Severson reached out. Um, and she was uh, talking about her group. And there's a lot of there's a lot of like interesting conversation, but also a lot of pushback to this read in particular. Mm-hmm. And she was like, "Could you take on some of these questions on a podcast?" And I was like, "I don't know. I, you know, I got a lot of topics." That I, and I realized I actually don't have any topics, so we're going to take it on. So I pulled up a couple of thoughts today on um, on the work. I also have her questions, which I want to get to. Is this um is this the same group as Walking with Purpose? No, that's a different. This group. is okay. So Eusterman, I got to show you this picture. I saw it. Oh, I sent it to yeah, you. him and like fifty women. Yeah, him and fifty women, and he's standing with his arms folded. He's so awkward. <laughs> I'm like, no. Yeah, he had no idea how big that group is. Why is he folding his arms like that? Because he's nervous about touching on any of the women. Oh my gosh, that's so great. You got such an awesome parish. Your sister. Don't forget in that. that, man. Your sister's uh, in that photo too. Yep, my sister's in it. Um, and uh, yeah, so. Great groups of women. This well-read moms group. Um, I think that the um, we know a couple of the people who are in it, but it's it's nationally. Um, there's chapters all over the country, and uh, I think it was started by a couple of women in uh, CL in Minnesota. I'm not totally sure about that, but um, just an awesome operation. I love what they're doing. Yeah. I just like totally want to support it and say if you're a woman at a parish or you want to get connected, um, keep reading. And uh, so before we get to the main uh, topic of the day, which is unpacking why it's important to read John Steinbeck, um, and in particular East of Eden, because uh, I think that's that's one of the questions they have, and some of the specific sub questions. I just want to start with a general kind of experience and uh, talking about our our path to reading literature hmm. and why we find it important in the seminary uh, and in the priesthood as well. So, did you read great works, great books, kind of growing up? Not really. No, I think um, unless you consider like Stuart Little a part of that. Sure. Uh, fourth grade. Yeah. Uh, but Sparknotes was my best friend. Oh, yeah. So I did not do much reading. The one book I, I really fell in love with that I actually did read in high school was Catcher in the Rye. And uh, I unfortunately don't remember much about it, um, but I remember being so captivated by it and not being able to put the book down. I also read... Uh, it was because it was Mr. Lacasio. Uh, he was such a hard teacher, and he knew how to ask questions that Sparknotes couldn't answer. So uh, I had to read for his class. Um, the Great Gatsby. Yep. I read that book. Uh, super, super powerful. And still to this day, I'll never forget, he said, everyone in this class needs to reread this book when you turn 30 because it will make way more sense. So I'm not 30 yet, but when I turn nice. 30, I'll have to reread Great Gatsby. Yeah, I... I like you, a lot of spark notes, um, generally disinterested in reading until my conversion at 18 just had, just didn't, didn't care about the truth. I mean, I remember reading those like sports books, uh, as a kid and that was it. If it wasn't about sports, I was just like not interested at all. I was too busy playing Halo. So there you go. And yeah. Call of Duty. This is before Halo existed, uh, before like awesome video games, uh, existed. They were just Mario Kart and these things. Mario Kart's awesome, but, uh, I had some great teachers though. Um, 
Um, Mr. Siekmeyer was uh, a really great one, great friends with his family when I was in high school, uh, Tom Siekmeyer. But I didn't, I didn't catch the reason this was so important. Mm-hmm. And I think that is because I wasn't interested in humanity. Mm. I wasn't asking questions about um, how to interpret reality. Um, I was just existing. I was just doing my thing, just playing sports, hanging out with people, doing whatever, um, which just kind of went down the same trajectory it always does, just kind of dissipates and collapses into, into it, there's a definitely a path. You don't just stay neutral for your whole life. Um, and I think that was, that was it. I was not interested in the human questions. They hadn't been awakened in me. Um, I had no interest whatsoever in anything religious. Um, hmm. But I think there was a connection between when I came to know Christ, I became very interested in reading. Uh, in truth, but also in in literature, mm. and started to just die pour into as many books I get my hands on. I was just like, like just thirsting for it. Um, and I think the key is humanity. So years ago, I read was reading um, John Henry Min's The Idea of the University, mm. and he has this little one liner that I just was like, wow, that's really interesting. He says, "Literature is the autobiography of humanity." You've heard me say that. You've had me in class. That's right. So what do I make you do in class? Remember? Yeah. So you say take a piece of literature and compare it, or or uh, not compare it, but use that to write through the lens of theology, if you will. So uh, in Mariology, take a topic of Mariology and use a piece of literature to write about a topic of Mary. So my Mariology paper wasn't specifically about a piece of literature. Mine was about mountaineering as a whole, which is awesome, <laughs> as Don't you remember. Yeah. Uh, but my anthropology paper was on. Oh, what's his name? Michael O'Brien's um, Father's Tale. Right. And so I took that of the main character in that. His name is Alexander. And it's a story about a, a, a father, right? So the father's tale about how he pursues his lost children, trying to bring them home. And I compared that with anthropology, man's search for meaning, man's search for happiness. Yeah, it was a great paper. I'm sure you got a good grade in it. <laughs> Not I, as, I could yeah. pull up the grades if we want, you know, take a look at what your marks, but... We probably won't do that. Anthropology wasn't great. That was the COVID semester when we yeah. stopped halfway and then everything fell apart. Yeah. Nobody learned anything. No, <laughs> I, I didn't learn anything. Um, I've taught 19 courses uh, in four years as a, as a professor at the seminary. And in every single one of them, I've done the same thing. And some guys love it and some guys absolutely hate it. And I'm just like, I don't want you to regurgitate what I said in mm-hmm. a paper. Yeah. I want you to be reading literature and I want you thinking about ideas that we're talking about because dogma, dogmatic theology dogma just means tr- truth or teaching in Greek. Um, so it's all abstract teachings mm-hmm. like the Trinity or the incarnation or divine maternity or these things. I want that in conversation because it just puts flesh on it, on the bones when you think about that. And it's a good exercise I think too. Um, and it also, I learn a lot from it. So I enjoy reading them for the most part and then uh, also learn a ton. So I've been trying to introduce the reading of literature as a part of human formation in seminary life of like, you can't, you just can't abstract things and go to class and and study theology just as a system of ideas. It has to be deeply entrenched in ideas, especially in humanity. And that's going to be one of the the catalysts for like thinking more deeply about theology in light of the pastorate, which is where everybody's destined to go Mm -hmm. uh, coming out of seminary. Yep. So Newman's right on keep reading literature the ladies at Well-Read Moms are reading literature, but I think the debate, and I don't actually know this, this is just from a little conversation with Susan, but I think the debate is then, well, is it really worth reading non-Catholic literature, like Steinbeck? Oh, I think so. Okay, so why? What would you say? Um, bec- uh, well, 
Is Steinbeck Christian? Uh, not really. Huh. Well, maybe I spoke too soon. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, like even the the classics, right? The Greek classics, the Odyssey, the Iliad, like that forms us in in certain ways. Um, what I was going to say earlier, though, is that uh, the first time that I really read a, a powerful novel, he's a Catholic author, though, so this doesn't go to that that point. But um, I remember getting so encapsulated by the book and the characters that I began to talk to the characters right? As if they're sitting next to me and you learn things from those characters of the stupid decisions they make, the good decisions they make, the virtues that they have, the vices, and you, you begin to be formed through that, right? The humanity as you're talking about, John. So, um, but it would seem to me that, uh, you don't have to be Catholic or, or maybe Christian to do that. But I do think you have to have a good understanding of what humanity is and what virtue is, which certainly the Greeks, uh, the Romans did, uh, but then post Christianity, I don't know, maybe, maybe it should be Christian authors. Yeah. I think it's, it's a question worth thinking about. Um, and I like that, that, that they're struggling with that as, as a community, or I think they probably are. Um, there's a lot of trash out there that's right. just not worth reading. Yep. But when it comes to the great books, there's something that's just timeless about the truths that they're expressing and that they've spoken to humanity, um, for so many centuries there's also an age thing, um, you know. You you need to think about what is proper for the the age that you're at and the and the place you're at. I do think it's very interesting though that Catcher in the Rye is the the first thing you said about your high school experience just reading, hmm. because there are many parents who'd be like, "There's no way in hell my kid's ever going to read that book." Sure, yeah. But it did something. It awoken something in you. And I just think if you're saying things like, "I a priori will not read something that's not Catholic." then you basically have to say, I'm not going to have a conversation with anybody who's not Catholic because mm. I have nothing to learn from them. Right. And a book is just, uh, literature is just a dialogue. It's a conversation with the author. Hmm. So it doesn't mean that I ascribe to the ideas, but do we go into conversation with people and think there's always something I can learn. Mm. There's always something like, I don't need to just hide it in a bastion and just kind of hold to my Catholic truth. But actually truth being Catholic means finding truth wherever it can be found. I can have a conversation with John Steinbeck and actually think more deeply about things mm-hmm. that I believe. All the while saying, you know, he doesn't really have a Christian sense of salvation. That 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 plays out in the book. And that's what people struggle with. And that's that's worth struggling with. This is what it looks like. Um, so I think that the, uh, yeah, I would strongly advise people to read classics, great books, even if they're not, don't have a Christian foundation, whether they're pre-Christian, like Homer and Virgil, essential, um, or if they're modern, uh, and they really, you know, like think about Goethe, for example, there's all these kind of like mm. quasi Christian things. Romanticism was like kind of Christian and totally pagan. And yeah, what are we doing with that? But it, I just, I, I just think it's just worth reading again, the, the great books, the classics. Yeah. No, that's good. And I like the caveat you throw in there that we have to acknowledge that there is, <laughs> there's a lot of trash out there and we're not saying read the trash. Uh, but read books that, um, you're able to actually dialogue with like thinkers who are trying to put, good things out there, you know, and, and I don't know, we, we have to discern what is trash and what's not before yeah. we dive into them. But, um, but I think that's right. It is a dialogue. It's a conversation that we want to be in commun- communication with. If you're having a cappuccino with somebody, you can tell pretty quickly, are they thoughtful? Is there a kind of general openness to their person? And are there, are there insights into humanity like penetrating? Mm. Are the questions awakened to them? If they're not, you know, like I would say, like 
a lot of this kind of ideological crap that's out there, they're not asking questions. Mm -hmm. They're just trying to make this kind of Marxist critique and kind of break down. Everything's kind of anti-Christian, and it's just like, this is not worth talking to. So you have your cappuccino, and then you move on with life. You don't really. (laughs) But the great interlocutors, I'm thinking of a guy like Jordan Peterson, who I really think is worth listening to. I think he's really thoughtful. And I think of Steinbeck as kind of the Jordan Peterson of the 1940s. Hmm. So he's he's got unbelievably penetrating insights into the psychology of good and evil in a way that many Catholics don't think about but need to hear hmm. and they need to kind of grasp with, struggle with a bit. Um, we're always looking to kind of shortcut the human experience of being Christian by just kind of cutting corners, pretending that everything's okay, moralizing the faith, and then kind of checking the boxes that we've made so that we can kind of stay on track with our self-perfecting project of holiness. Mm-hmm. That happens. We do that. We're also postmodern. That's why the trads drive me nuts, right? Because it's like you're not living in the 13th century. Mm-hmm. You are, you, your, your mind is penetrated by the thought. You're not, you're not just live in this kind of vacuum because all of your friends sit around and talk about what kind of maniple you know, <laughs> Father used on Sunday. You're still postmodern. You're still approaching Christianity with a technical or a technological uh, way of thinking. That happens. That mentality. It's there. And so we got to read some of these and be like, they have to help us unmask a bit of our own self-deception in how we're relating to Christ because we're not just in a cultural vacuum here. Yeah. So, and the last point I would make is, you know what chiaroscuro means? I don't. Chiaro, light, scuro, dark. That was mm. the artistic style of um, uh, Caravaggio. Yeah, he Made okay. famous in that time. So, you know, he yeah. like, he uses darkness to elucidate light. Yeah, like the, like the painting of Matthew, right? It's dark until the light shines on Christ. Exactly. Yeah. So I think that's cool. I think a Say sign, it one more time. This is Italian. Chiaro, chiaro scuro. Okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think Steinbeck, what he did for me was he elucidates light and darkness in such a way that you realize more intensely the, the battle and the drama between grace and sin. And also, he also elucidates for me the distinctiveness of the Christ event, like how powerful that was. Just reading people struggling in darkness, trying to kind of find their way through life and just kind of unbelievable dramatic circumstances helps us to say, wow, we desperately need a Savior. Mm. And if I was going to say one thing to the well-read moms, I'd be like, ladies, the temptation is, as John Paul II tells us, is the rejection of sin. We don't actually think we're sinning. Like, and maybe some people are and they're scrupulous and that's one thing, but most of Christians are just kind of like, we're just great, we're really nice, we're orthodox, we're, we've got it all together. And it's like, no, you're like fundamentally broken. Mm. Really, really deeply. And you, if you can't resonate with these characters, all you do is judge, judge them, then it's like, well, not sure what to say. Mm. So, yeah. Not just Christians, though, that uh, can struggle with that, but also just secular people. Like, all I have to do is be nice, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and Steinbeck, he pushes us. He, I'm holding the book right now. So are we going to, like, I'm, I'm excited to read this, but I do want, like, maybe a slight summary. A slight summary. Um, I'm also curious about East of Eden. I was just reading Genesis the other day, uh, right? And they're, they're exiled East of Eden. So is that what it alludes to? Or? Uh, it's a, it's, the book is, is masterfully written. Here's the first line, which they put on the back cover. The Salinas Valley is in Northern California. It is a long, narrow swall between two ranges of mountains, and the Salinas River winds and twists up the center until it falls into Monterey Bay. So it's situated um, in the Salinas Valley, 
and it's the story of homesteaders um, about right around the like late 1800s, early 1900s. And the first, and the story is multiple families, and it kind of bounces between chapters. And so the first is the story of this guy named Samuel Hamilton, who comes to the area from Ireland, um, and is really a, a really remar- remarkable figure. Yeah. And then he meets uh, a guy named Adam Trask. Okay, so you got Adam here. We're already kind of moving into the... Yeah, interesting. Because you're starting to look at the Genesis thing, and he kind of plays with it and then departs from it. Hmm. So you always think like, okay, they're going that way. So Adam uh, his is from um, the New England, and he uh, falls in love through a crazy circumstance, which I'm not going to tell you about because I want you to read the book, with a woman named uh, Kate, or Kathy, as she'll be known as also, who is basically the personification of evil. Hmm. I have never been so compelled and drawn to a character and yet so horrified by her. Yeah, repulsed. Oh, it's unbelievable. But but the the fascination hmm. with it, with yeah. the machinations of evil and the kind of the plot twists and just how she, what happens to her through these decisions, but also the, the much of the story thinking, wow, she's, she's tricked everybody. She's got it all and she get what she wants. So... Hmm. They end up moving to Salinas, um, and uh, they have, and she has twin boys, who are Cain and Abel. Nope, almost. So <laughs> you, that's that's you what set he, me up for that. No, so he they talk about um, there's this wonderful Chinese servant named Lee who's kind of the wisdom figure to Adam and kind of helps him through life because he's just completely broken by what happens with Kate. And again, I don't want to tell you too much, uh, but they talk about that. Um, so the kids are named Caleb and Aaron. Hmm. C and A, yeah, right? interesting. Um, and they're twin brothers, and so you're thinking, well, that's where the the hump, the fratricide is going to happen, right? Well, it doesn't exactly. It's just again, he kind of plays in and plays out. So he's kind of playing with the themes and helping you to reflect more deeply on it. Uh, and the story uh, then kind of continues down through the boy's life, and um, the, the it all kind of plays out in the end. And it's heart wrenching and beautiful and tragic and dark, but also hopeful in ways. And it's just definitely worth reading. So I'm not saying anything more. Great. The exact middle of the book is page 301 uh, is the story of Lee who spends years reflecting on, for whatever reason, he gets the fourth chapter of Genesis. I think Samuel Hamilton gave it to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he ends up um, spending years, he's talking to all these kind of wise men in Chinatown in San Francisco and they're just kind of hashing through it. And then he finally says this, after two years we felt we could approach your 16 verses of the fourth chapter of Genesis. My old gentleman felt that these words were very important too. Thou shalt and do thou. And this was the gold from our mining. Thou mayest. Thou mayest rule over sin. The old gentleman smiled and nodded and felt the years were well spent. It brought them out of their Chinese shells too. And right now they are studying Greek. So that's what Lee says about this uh, this particular word, Timshul. And it becomes definitely the, the the pervading theme. I think the center of the whole story hinges on that moment when they're in conversation, and it's also the last word of the of the whole story. Mm. Thou mayest. Okay, so that's Genesis chapter four. Let me pull it up here. Yes. Genesis chapter four, verse seven. So, um, thou mayest, if you. This is this is the English translation, but he's working out of the Hebrew. If you do well. Uh, will you not be accepted? And if you do, if you not do not do well, sin is couching at the door. Its desires for you, but you must master it. So, the last word, master it, is really kind of the thou mayest rule over evil. Hmm. And this is what God says to Cain right before he's about to kill Adam. Hmm. 
and he still does it. I have a hard time acknowledging this, but Adam is the middle child. Cain is the oldest child. I remember Goble and I got in a fight about that. I was like, you middle children, you're trying to kill everybody. And he's like, actually, in the beginning, Cain is the oldest. Cain's the oldest, then Abel. Yep. Then uh, Seth. Seth. Yep. Yeah, you said Adam. Okay. Oh, sorry. Cain is the oldest. Um, <clears throat> so so yeah, go that's what Tim Shull means. You say it one more time that, that you may have like the power. Sin is couching at the door. It's desires for you, but you must master it. Master it. Okay. So Tim Shoal, the Hebrew verb, qual imperfect, second masculine, uh, <laughs> second person masculine singer. Mike, Mike Rapp would love all this. Um, thou shalt rule, so to speak. Okay. Literally. It comes from mashal, which is the, prim- the uh, primitive root just to rule, to govern over something, mm. uh, to have power. When he talks about Tim Shoal, when Lee is talking about it to Adam, uh, Adam Trask, he's saying... Um, this is taking seriously human freedom and that agency and self-determination are possible in the face of good and evil. And I think that is Steinbeck's main point. <laughs> At least that's the primary takeaway, which is to say the, the, he's painting this extremely dark portrayal of humanity. <laughs> and in the chiaroscuro moment of light is saying, but you still have human freedom and you can still choose the good. Choose the good Thou mayest. Yeah. This is your choice. You're not self, you're not um, self-determined in the sense of you have to be evil. If you're evil, you have to be good if you're good. And this word Tim Schill is going to play out in the life of the boys as they get older and they start to kind of deal with a lot of the family problems, especially in relating to their mother. Um, and they, they have the choice, mm. but it's a dark, it's a dark, uh, again, portrayal of humanity. And the story doesn't just end happily ever after. Hmm. There's still this kind of, you know, problem of like, well, what does redemption actually look like? Hmm. Steinbeck doesn't really have a working, he doesn't totally play that out in terms of this work. Uh, he's saying, freedom, thou mayest choose good, thou mayest choose evil. You, you, you have the capacity to choose to kill your brother hmm. or you have the capacity to love him. And it's in you. But again, he's going so deeply into why do Augustinian themes? Why do we do the things that we don't want to do? Saint Paul, why you know why do I desire things that I change that I can't that I can't actually change? And so I see that as just a direct kind of um, important insight for us right now. So long as we don't lead to some kind of um, kind of Pelagianism, you know, where it's just like we make ourselves good by what we do. And we have a deep Christian metaphysics beneath this, metaphysics being the study of being, but we, we have a strong sense, um, and I've always taught that when Father Sean does something good, when he chooses the good, God is actually the primary agent, mm-hmm. you remember studying this? I do. Of that good act. So your will mm-hmm. chooses the good, but because God is good himself, he's the primary agent, agent. in choosing that. You do something evil, you're the primary agent of that and that's really crazy to think about mm-hmm. like that's you can abstract that and be like oh that's kind of interesting but like think about that you're not the primary agent of anything good you have ever done mm-hmm. it's humbling yeah it's like okay <clears throat> that means yeah i have to surrender this i have to give it back to god and say like god you you are the primary agent here you know we are we are instruments in his hands um <clears throat> can i go back a little bit yeah for sure so one of the first things you mentioned is uh, part of the reason why you like this book is because Steinbeck and then now we were asking the right questions. 
so it seems to me then that part of the question that we're asking is, what is freedom? What is the human person? Uh, why is there good? Why is there evil? And it seems like that's what he's wrestling with is um, uh, talking about homesteading, you know, and, and seeing probably a lot of uh, murder, a lot of death. Uh, why is there good? Why is there evil? Why is there murder? Why is there uh, these different, right? It's, it's the problem of evil. And it seems to me he's saying, you're not destined for evil. You can choose good. You can choose evil. But it's almost like he's beckoning us, no pun intended, uh, to choose the good, right? Yeah. And I think, you know, sometimes we read things that help us answer, get the answers. Sometimes we got to read things that help us ask the questions. Mm. It's not surprising that these CL people, these Cellini, I always joke, they love the questions more than the answers. Uh, my friends who are in CL, and I mean that as an absolute compliment in the sense that they really are awakened. And there's a kind of dormant Catholic life where, well, I should say Catholic life, where, where questions die. They remain dormant. We're, I told my guys at a student council meeting, which I run these things once a month, we eat pizza and we talk about whatever they're interested in. And it's usually complaining about the liturgy. And I was like, for once, can can we just not talk about this? I was like, I can't wait for the day when you guys are more interested in human questions than you are liturgical practicum. Mm. And they were like, yeah, absolutely. We can. So we'll see. The next meeting is uh, next Wednesday. So I, uh, I don't know. So I, I, I just think this book I'm really interested in how do we rebuild the Catholic center? Mm -hmm. And we talk about this a lot. Like everything is going to extremes. How, we got to have some normal people standing at the center and going deep at the center, uh, not just kind of floating, but really going for it and trying to stay in the center. And none of us actually know where the center, the Catholic center is. We all think we're in the center. Of course, everybody does. Mm -hmm. um, but we have to get there by asking the questions again. And we have to love the questions. And I think Steinbeck is a lover of questions. And I think that he's worth listening to. I don't think he has the answers. It's not, it's not a Christian uh, worldview that he's operating out of. It's postmodern. Postmoderns love freedom in the way that moderns loved reason. That was the obsession of the 16th, 17th, 18th century. 19th, 20th, it's really about freedom, mm -hmm. trying to work this thing out. And uh, he doesn't commit to the existentialist project. He doesn't like, he's just kind of floating in things, but he's really trying to say something. And he's seeing something that's real in humanity. Hmm. And that I think is worth listening to. Yeah. And that's why literature is the autobiography of humanity. Like I, I love that to see and, and to say something real about humanity. Again, just to echo what I said earlier, when you read a good piece of literature, you begin dialoguing with the characters yeah. as if they're right in front of you. And um, I know you're not a crier, but I am. <laughs> when it, the, those profound books that I've read uh, where you almost fall in love with the characters you weep when the character cry, uh, dies or like when, yeah. when the character does something that's terrible, like you're so engrossed and invested in the story in a way that forms us because it's, it's authentic humanity. Absolutely. I, um, I remember finishing Les Miserables in seminary and Musset came into my room, Father Peter Musset, <laughs> and he was like, Hey, let's go get it. And he looked at me and he just goes, I'm going to give you a moment. And he just like walked out of the, cause I was like in a complete state of just, you're just like, I, you get you just get transported somewhere. Mm. Um, when I was in Rome, I was reading. I read Kristen Lovren's daughter a couple times, and I would be preparing for mass, setting my intention, and it would, I'd have to be like, "That's a character from the book. That's not a real person." Right? Like multiple times, yeah. I, I was going to the altar, like offering mass for characters that I was reading about <laughs> in the story, and you're just like, "This is insane." So we need this. Uh, we need the conversation. We need the dialogue, and we just need the. We need these people in our life. These mm. characters. 
they help us understand who we are and who we're trying to love in real life. Yep. And that's what literature story has always communicated that scripture, God reveals himself through narrative. Like it's, it's, this is the, this is the way that human beings think we learn through stories. We don't just learn through abstractions. Like they have to be enfleshed and communicated. Yep. All right. So let's bring Susan and Marcy onto the uh, podcast here. Uh, you don't have to speak in a feminine <laughs> voice. That's okay. I was literally about to. That's funny that you said that. Um, they, um, they're the ones who kind of wrote a couple of these questions. There's like three questions and then we'll, we'll finish this up here. Okay. So Great. they said the pervading theme of Tim Schull, thou mayest is such a driving force in the novel. Uh, this knowledge can, that can move towards the good and not evil brings so much hope, but this freedom that we've been given to choose is only freedom if ordered to love. All right. So then she says, she's listening to Mumford and Sons songs, Tim Schull. Ordered to following God's commands, what does this mean in a society that claims that freedom is being able to do, quote, whatever you want? So how do we not interpret Steinbeck, what he's saying about Tim Schull, in light of the, the kind of untethering of the will which has happened in postmodern context? Hmm. That's a great question. Um, yeah, I, I'm still trying to formulate what that means but i uh, also don't haven't read the book so this is not fair to sure but i, I do think um right he's you said he's writing in like the 1940s uh so this is more a postmodern thing where freedom is all about whatever you want to do um but yeah go ahead well I, I think you're you're on to it which is steinbeck believes in the good but he doesn't have an like an, an operative worldview that can explain that hmm so he's perceiving things and he's interested in the questions, but there's nothing behind the questions because there's no God. Mm. Or there's not any sense of that. Like the, and, and part of that is just how we've, we've treated freedom. We've just kind of, but I don't think Steinbeck is going to say, Tim Schill means thou mayest do whatever the hell you want. It means thou mayest choose the good and reject evil. Because mm. he's a man who really believes in, in the battle between good and evil. I think way more than many of us Catholics do. Mm. I mean, he, he's, I mean, I just have never seen, I've never seen a portrayal like that before. It's, it, I, I can't wait for you to read it and we can circle back on this. Um, sure. But yeah, I, I think Tim Schull, uh, for him, means that one can choose the good uh, and reject evil and one should or shall, but it's not just a shall, it's the mayest. It's not just the kind of obediential command of like, you need to do this. So he's, he's reflecting on conscience uh, in light of, so he's standing in the middle of a postmodern world that is saying truth and goodness are whatever I find them to be, and he's saying no, you're you're really oriented towards this, and you have the freedom to choose that. Mm -hmm. Your your will is actually free to choose that. But here's what happens when you choose evil. Mm. Here's what happens when you choose when you choose good. How much do you think he was influenced by the First World War? That's an interesting question. Yeah, yeah. I mean things. And just the harshness. He grew up, he actually places himself as a character in the book. Super interesting. Hmm. Um, but he grew up and he saw the harsh world of, of immigration and, and just the kind of, all the cultural battles that were happening and the kind of settling of the United States and then, yeah, the, the world wars. So I wouldn't be surprised if that's a, a part of it for sure. Hmm. All right, Susan, next question. How do we live Tim Schull without becoming without it becoming a form of self-reliance? Hmm. Yeah, that's a that I think that's a good question too because uh, it's easy just to white knuckle our way through it. But to to your point, like every good action that I do, God is the primary agent, uh, and and so in that sense, in a certain way, like we can never be self reliant if it, as we do good. 
However, we have to still acknowledge that. So again, that's where the humility comes in. But um, we surrender. I think it goes back to the Marian heart, as you would say, that uh, I'm not in control and I have to surrender it. I want to be in control, but the more that I surrender, the more that I live in that Marian posture, the more that I'm able to truly say, uh, may I rule over this, may I rule over sin, uh, but it comes with that Marian heart. Yeah, that's right on. Um, I think Steinbeck's portrayal of freedom is radically self-reliant. It really is the man or the woman and their choice. Hmm. So there isn't a sense of um, this kind of reliance on God because God isn't real. This is just the tragic circumstances of and harshness of um, agrarian life for the immigrants of the United States 100 years ago. Hmm. Just a harsh vision of reality, and it was a reality. Yeah. But it's not just doesn't just end in that kind of emptiness of kind of an agnostic uh, world. Uh, that the will is that God is freedom, and God's infinite freedom is what we participate in with freedom. When mm-hmm. we say he, he chooses, when we choose the good, He chooses the good through us. It's like there's this interplay between the union of freedom and goodness, which is the perfection of God, His love. And then there's the humans who are created in his image and likeness. And so kind of like Steinbeck, he picks up on chapter four. He missed oh, Genesis. He missed chapters yeah. one and two. Mm-hmm. Uh, and three kind of plays out a little bit. But four is Cain and Abel. That's, that's what he's going after. East of Eden, that's where Cain goes after killing Abel. Mm. He's reflecting on a post-Lapsarian world. But it's, it's, that's why it's so, it's so compelling because the fall is our attempt to be free without God's freedom. Hmm. And that's that's... That's what fallen humanity does, and that's what Steinbeck is trying to say, and he's saying something true. Mm. But Christian redemption, that cross we were just looking at, um, this says everything about freedom, about, as you were saying, the total surrender, uh, which is the form of Christ's sonship to the Father from all eternity, and and his living in that reception. Mm. So we're not just autonomous, uh, free-willing, you know, uh, self-reliant, agents we're actually deeply dependent we're extremely limited we're broken by sin and we we're not free at all and we're just going to lead ourselves into deeper slavery unless we try that so that's just the the christian vision just envelops this and deepens it so much more yeah all right so and uh she's got some other great stuff in here but we better keep moving on last question another theory i've been chewing over has to do with the character of aaron aaron's one of the two mm-hmm. twin boys that kathy and adam are the uh, parents of mm-hmm. Is he not just the other side of the Kathy coin? He's the good to her evil, but there's mm. something incredibly sterile and unattractive about his character. He's so moralistic that he seems to become as inhuman as his mother. Perhaps this was Steinbeck's way of saying that humanity falls somewhere in the middle. It's necessary that we fall in the middle, like you said, and like I said in the previous comp- podcast, a couple things. So that's not really a question, but it's a great insight. Um, and I, I think that'd be probably impossible for you to answer. But I would say, Susan, um, I think that's right on with Aaron. So Aaron um, gets really religious at one point, and he becomes like super connected to the uh, the Protestant minister, the priest in the town, and just spends all of his time with them. And then, but it wasn't wasn't real. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've seen this. We've seen people go so hardcore into the Catholic thing, especially when they're young, mm-hmm. and then just completely collapse the other side. And so the the kind of sterility of a character who kind of brackets life and says. Outside of this, things are not clean and safe, so mm-hmm. I'm just going to live in that world. And he ends up idealizing characters th- whose relationships get destroyed with him versus his brother, Cal, who's just like 
so in the mess and sees evil in himself. And I think that Cal's the one who really takes on Tim Schull, uh from Lee, who's like a kind of a surrogate father to him, um, and ends up kind of living that out while Aaron, everything's just so kind of neat and orderly. And then, and then sadly, it, it does not end that way. Mm. So I would say, Susan, that's right on. <clears throat> yep. Shani, I'm sorry. I would agree. <laughs> okay, very good. Um, sorry, is that the end? That's the end. So uh, would, would Steinbeck allow room for like weakness like human weakness uh addiction drug addictions things like that where people end up choosing evil because out of like a a a true mental illness as opposed to like like a lot of the people we encounter on the streets are there because they they right addiction and, and homelessness they they're they're struggling right a lot of mental illness it seems like steinbeck wouldn't really allow for that it seems like the self-reliance that you're talking about it would just be no like a uh, uh, man up and just figure it out just go and and live it yeah choose the good that's a good question i think that um he would probably i mean it's hard to say what he would say we should you know we keep this with reverence but it seems to my reading from east of eden that um he accounts for the total brokenness of humanity which means addiction and psychological illness and everything mm-hmm. and what he's saying with tim Schull is in the face of no matter how broken and messed up your life is you can always choose mm. and it's hard to say that i was just talking to luke metzer who's back from his immersion when our guys in their first year they go work with the poor for a month um he got back from gallup new mexico and he's just talking about how like he led a four-day retreat for a lot of these navajo homeless guys and they just couldn't they're, they're so their brains are so fried that they just couldn't couldn't think about anything. They couldn't mm. grasp anything. They couldn't choose anything. Sad. Um, so that does happen. Um, and certainly you look at the characters of, um, in the novel and they, evil makes you evil. When you choose evil, you become evil and then you choose more evil and you become less and less free. Mm. And so not to say that illness and, and addiction, and these things are like that, but everybody has free will and the choices that we make determine the person that we are. They really do affect us. And I think that's, he's very interested in the kind of self-determining nature of freedom more than he is kind of the, the preliminary or presuppositional ways that we are free. That'd mm. be my two cents on it. Yeah. Well, thanks Steinbeck. Thanks Steinbeck. And thank you, Susan and Amanda. I hope you listen to this and I hope we get some time with your, um, I almost said, uh, walking with purpose. Now you got me all messed up with these different <laughs> groups. Um, <laughs> So a shout out to Father, or not Father, hopefully soon to be, uh, John Herbert Cooney. Uh, John Herbert Cooney is a seminarian. His name is John. We just call him John Herbert. (laughs) It's awesome. So he started the John Herbert Cooney Cooney Literary Society, which has now been shortened to the Tim Book Club at the seminary. So there's guys who are reading King Lear right now. Just read the Screwtape Letters, but East of Eden was our... um, our project in the fall and just love sitting around of course as seminarians you know they're they're always kind of working the system so we go to somewhere to have a cigar and a scotch and talk about the book guess where they went for the first one to east of eden conversation and they were so grateful to invite me so i would pick up the tab churchill cigar bar in the brown palace downtown yeah i was like this is the most expensive bar in the city they're like oh we didn't know it's like oh yeah sure you they knew they knew so we had, a, we, had a, we had a great time it was in december awesome conversation a lot of the stuff we've been talking about today is hearing the guys share and uh so shout out to all of them mm-hmm. you got any ones yeah maybe two one would just be amanda crater since you brought her up uh amanda and tim 
Tim uh, used to have this like long flowing hair and he looked like Jonathan Rumi. He literally looks like the guy who plays Jesus in The Chosen. That's funny. So uh, Father Will Schmidt, actually, the first time he came to preach at Lourdes uh, when he was here on sabbatical, he looked out and he was like so nervous to preach because he saw Jonathan Rumi. It wasn't Jonathan Rumi, it was Tim Crater. That's really So great. shout out to the Crater family. They're from New Orleans. My mom's from New Orleans, so I've, I've connected with them pretty well. Uh, but more importantly, shout out to Trin Wynn. Uh, she is a doctor. She's the best abs fan ever and DU hockey fan. Uh, she works with Hannah Wilson. But um, shout out to her. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I'm sure this will embarrass you, but that's okay. Uh, we're so grateful for your support. That's great. And I have one last uh, shout out. I was in Mundelein, um seminary last weekend for the seminary basketball tournaments we did not make the playoffs we had some great bit, but i got to meet um the other francois so jonathan's brother jacob kind of the even and they're twi- identical they're twins, twins, twins right? they're the twins so there that's a great shout out for this podcast yeah. if, you know thou mayest all right jacob and jonathan and then i met a guy named deacon evan uh who's a deacon from atlanta and he just spoke beautiful when they come up and they're just like here's how your podcast really affected me and it was just a great moment and i really appreciate him and we appreciate when you guys come up to us and talk to us about that so thank you to him first for your ordination coming up this spring and i think that's all maybe one more shout out all right red brads just had twin boys too oh man (laughs) uh benedict michael and giorgio francis red brads his name is rd the two letters and i told him on a ride months ago i said you gotta name your kids r and d (laughs) And he's like, I don't think my wife's going to go for it. He's like, okay. So what are the names again? Uh, Benedict, Michael, and Giorgio Francis. Beautiful. All right, RD, congratulations, buddy. And thanks, everyone, for listening to this. Well-read moms, we want to hear from you. We want to hear about these questions. Uh, thanks for reaching out to us, and we hope this was helpful today. CatholicStuffPodcast at gmail.com. We'll see you next week. Thanks. Thanks.